Ryan Dean Tucker is the host of Lilac City Live, which if you have not been to, you should. It is amazing. February 20th. Uh, he is also uh, the host of Saturday Night Cinema. He orchestrated and performed live in the stage versions of Seinfeld, Friends, Die Hard, and Back to the Future, which, yeah, which I wish that I had seen. I hope he does it again. Uh, and he's going to tell us about, well, sometimes when you are going to get a new car, it's not exactly what you expect it to be. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, everybody uh, on Pivot for inviting me to do this. It's great. I decided to move to L.A. and go to film school pretty much right after 9-11. And uh, I moved there and hung out there and got some roommates. And I met a guy that I was living with. And he showed me how to hitchhike. And I got really into hitchhiking. And we hitchhiked to San Francisco. And we hitchhiked from L.A. to here, Spokane. And uh, it was, like, the coolest thing to me. And I would, like, read Bukowski and... Kerouac and be like, man, I'm so cool. Um, but I really just liked doing it. And then I got another roommate who um, got a job that he needed to go a lot of different locations. So I let him use my car and uh, he would drop me off at work and I would hitchhike home because I liked hitchhiking. I was hooked, you could say. Um, but it was weird because I worked at Nordstrom. So like <laughs> a guy in a suit, like... It was like the fanciest transient ever. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it came in handy because I had a really crummy white 80s Subaru that was falling apart. And uh, my mom found a new car for me up here in Spokane. So it's 20 hours to drive from where I was at in California to Spokane. And I was going to do it in one straight shot. And uh, I got all ready and drove really early in the morning, and there was a bunch of wildfires because it was summertime in California. And uh, so it's behind quite a bit already. And by the time I actually got going, it was already afternoon. And um, so I'm cruising along, feeling pretty good, and my car just dies. Uh, it, I can't give it any, it's not doing anything when I push the gas button. Um, <laughs> And I know a lot about cars, so uh, <laughs> so I pulled over, and uh, I'm in Death Valley at this point, and there's um, there's nothing in Death Valley. They named it for a reason, uh, but there's overpasses, so there's off ramps, but it goes to nothing. There's no streetlights. It's just nonsense. Um, but I parked underneath the bridge uh, with the so I'd have some shade, and I was like, hey. <laughs> This'll be okay, just, it's hot out here. Again, I'm really like a mechanic. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I got back in the car after reading a comic book and it started up and I was like, great. So I went a few more miles and then it died again. And I was like, ah, shoot, I guess I need to go buy some coolant. Um, parked it underneath another bridge in the shade and then just started hitchhiking. Uh, just to get to the next gas station that had coolant. I don't know what coolant was going to do to my car, but uh, hitchhiking, nobody's picking me up, nobody's picking me up. I'm wearing a bright orange shirt and jeans, and I'm just like, what is going on? Um, nothing happening. Uh, and then finally, a white car with Iowa plates pulls over, and I go running up, and I'm really used to hitchhiking at this point, and I just jump right in. 
and he just goes, and this guy is sweating profusely, and he's white-knuckled on the uh, steering wheel, and the console is filled with cigarette butts. Not the ashtray, the console. Um, and it just, it reeks, and he is sweating, and he has not made eye contact with me. He, I got in the car, and he went, and that was it. And I said, hey, if you could just stop me at the next gas station, that would be really terrific, thanks. And he didn't reply, and, uh, and I was like, so where are you headed? And there's like no reply, and I'm like, I'm going to die. Uh, <laughs> Uh, then I said, uh, because I'm a nervous talker, <laughs> I was like, so what part of Iowa are you from? And he uh, turns to me and goes, who the f*** told you I'm from Iowa? <laughs> I said, I, I, uh, nobody. Uh, I saw the plates on your car, and he goes, oh, this isn't my car. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> so I stopped talking, and then... Um, we go for about 30 miles, 25, 30 miles, and there's a gas station coming up, and I'm like, hey, great, right here would be really good, right back there, just go ahead and stop anytime. And he goes, uh, oh, I'll just take you to the next one. It's only another, like, 40 miles, and I was like, and he goes, ah, I'm just messing with you, and punches me a bunch, and we're going 70 miles an hour, and he jumps into the median, like, crosses the freeway, like a U-turn on the five. It was insane, and dirt goes flying up, and I'm like, oh my god, drops me off, says see you later, and starts heading south. <laughs> okay. I buy coolant, and that's it, because I'm an idiot, and I'm 21 years old, and I'm walking back to my car, nobody wants to give me a ride. I later find out that that's where, like, I think Folsom Prison is, the orange shirt. Not a good look. Um... <laughs> Uh, and I'm walking back, and now it's dark. It's very late, um, and there is no streetlights. If there's no cars around, I cannot see anything around me. It is pitch black, and there's, uh, I'm dehydrated. I'm hot, and now I'm cold because I've gotten rid of everything, and it's nighttime in the desert, and I hear noises and animals, and I'm crying, and I'm laughing, and I'm delirious and insane, and I'm singing really loud because I don't want anybody to kill me or anything, and I thought I had seen, I thought I parked my car five overpass bridges away, and I got to the fifth one, and it wasn't there, and I was like, Okay, I'll go one more. And I got uh, to one more, and it wasn't there. And I was like, there's no way I walked by my car, did it? Because I'm on the other side of the freeway now. And I was like, hmm. Uh, so I go, well, I'm going to go one more, and then I'll just die in the desert. So I went one more, uh, and I saw the yellow flashing lights of the tow truck. And so I went running with like all the last bit of strength I had. And I'm getting there, and he's pulling away right when I'm like 20 feet away. And I'm like, you got to stop. And the guy gets out, and he goes, oh, I thought you was a coyote. I was going to run you over. And I was like, no, I'm not. Thank you. Can you tow my, have you seen a white Subaru? He goes, yeah, it's over there. I go, great. Can you tow it for me to the gas station? He goes, yeah, it's going to be 250 bucks. I had $300 to get home. So that was pretty much all of my money. So we got it there, but it's the middle of the night. And he goes, the place doesn't open until 6. I go, great. I should be home by now. I'm going to call my mom. And I went to the Carl's Jr. and bought a big, huge soda, because soda is what you need when you're dehydrated. 
have a soda, and I go, you have a payphone, I use the payphone, and I go, Mom, I'm sorry, I, I don't know, I'm in some kettle town city in California, my car died, I don't know what's happening, and then it goes click, not like deposit more money, click, dial tone, your phone call's over, and I was like, and I put more money in, and I'm like, Mom, I don't know what's wrong with this phone. Uh, I, I, I don't know where I'm at. Click. <laughs> I just start bashing the receiver into the phone. And the uh, Carl's Jr. guy comes out, and he's like, what's going on? And I go, your phone doesn't work. And he goes, ah, use the other phone at the gas station. I'm like, ah, and I go, OK. And I go around the back of it, and it's dark out. And I'm like huffing and puffing. And I uh, walk like um, the coyote in a Roadrunner cartoon off of a 15-foot ledge. Um, I, I swear to God, there was like a moment where I was walking on the air and I held up a sign that said, yikes. <laughs> and I fell so hard and like got cut up and was just crushed and I rolled over and the soda I had bought fell on my face. <laughs> and then uh, I laid there and fell asleep and woke up in the morning, and they said my car had cracked the engine block. Uh, my mom bought me a ticket, and I hitchhiked back to LAX and flew home. <laughs> I love that story. I love the image of a, a kid walking down the highway with antifreeze. It's going to fix his cracked engine block. Next we have Julie Stratton. Julie is a gender-bending, soul-seeking lesbian whose journey to authenticity has included playing co collegiate basketball, getting sober, earning a BA and MA, and marrying her person and being a caregiver. Julie has found a home in, North, in the North Idaho LGBTQ plus community and co-creating the North Idaho Pride Alliance. Tonight, Julie's gonna tell us a story about how she got hooked on her favorite thing, and here we go, Julie Stratton. Well, I started playing basketball when I was 12 years old. And really, that's when I started learning basketball, learning how to play. And it was really love at first bounce. I fell in love with everything about the game. Now, back in the 70s, the rules were really different for girls and boys. And the girls didn't get to play organized basketball until we were a certain age. And I was not of that certain age yet. But luckily, I met the head coach, the head varsity coach for our local high school. And he brought me into his gym and he introduced me to his team. I was kind of like a lost stray puppy that they adopted. They saw this scrawny little tomboy that needed a place to belong and they brought me into their fold. In fact, they named me Half Pint. That was my nickname. And I still have the little shirt, and it is little. I think it's only that big. That says Half Pint on the back of it. But this was really an amazing group of young women who taught me far, far beyond the game of basketball. Now, one of my jobs as manager was I got to shag the balls, and I got to fill the water, and of course I got to pick up all of their sweaty jerseys, because that's what I love to do. And my mom was more than happy to give me up a couple hours a, a night after school because I had so much energy, I'm pretty sure I could have powered a nuclear power plant. And she just was tired of me bouncing the ball in the house and bouncing her off the walls. 
And so they took me in. One of my favorite memories off the court was Michelle stuffing me into the trunk of her car with a cooler of beer and going to the drive-in. I was in love with John Travolta. And it was the only way I was going to see Saturday Night Fever. So I happily got into this trunk with this cooler, and they smuggled me in, and I saw my first R-rated movie at 12 years old. I'm pretty sure it's the first time that I got drunk on Miller Lite, too. <laughs> now, this team was very special, and they worked really hard, and they earned a trip to the state tournament. And we went to the University of Illinois to play in the Assembly Hall, which is this great arena. And they took me with them every step of the way as their half pint and their tag along. I was at practices. I was in the locker room. I was on road trips. I was at their parties. I was everywhere. And when they ran out onto the floor for their first game, the crowd went crazy. The pep band played our our fight song, and I proudly walked out with our coach, Paul Judson. I was in this spiffy, three-piece, red velvet suit that my grandma made. <laughs> I was feeling on top of the world. The sound, the smells, everything that went into this game, I fell in love. I fell in love with the game of basketball, and I fell in love with being a part of a team and who those women were. Now, unfortunately, my parents moved around a lot, and I never got a chance to play for Coach Judd at that high school. And so we moved between my eighth grade and freshman year to a little town in central Illinois that really didn't have basketball. In fact, our gym burnt down homecoming night my sophomore year. <laughs> so I had a piece of plywood and a metal hoop with no net nailed to a tree on our rocky driveway, and that became my practice court. Because I was determined, when I saw those girls playing at that state tournament, I was determined that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play basketball the rest of my life if I could. At least I wanted to get a basketball scholarship. But I wanted what they had in that moment. I knew that's what I was gonna do. So I kept practicing. Now, the end of my sophomore year, my parents got divorced. And my mom came to me and said, you get to choose where we move next. I was like, cool. <laughs> I was 15 years old. My love affair with Miller Lite was going good and strong. <laughs> I wasn't particularly interested in school. I wasn't doing great in, in school or anything. But I knew I held on to that dream that I wanted to play basketball in college. And so I thought, well, i got to find a high school where they're pretty good and I have a shot at it. So I did some research, went to some camps, talked to some coaches, and I found a high school in Peoria, Illinois that um, had a tremendous history of basketball. And so I went to Peoria Richwoods to become a Lady Knight. And the Lady Knights really were a powerhouse team in Illinois. My junior year it was a, a big transition. I went from a school in a rural, very rural town of 150 kids to an urban school of 1,600. I went from being the star athlete to being somebody who came off of the bench and didn't start. My grades were suffering. I was drinking as much as I could, but I still managed to play and play fairly well. So by my senior year, we had done really well, and we managed to go to the state tournament. I got back to that arena that started my career. 
We went 32-0 that year, and we won that state championship. It really was pretty awesome, and the party afterward was epic, for sure. Now, while I was out living my dreams, my mom, she was working three jobs just to put food on the table and a roof over our head. She worked at the book bindery at the school district, she cleaned apartments, and she worked at Kmart as a checker. One of my favorite memories with my mom was at that time was when she got off work at nine o'clock, we would go to the grocery store. And we would go down the aisle and she would push the cart and she would hand me things and inevitably I would shoot them into the basket because I was shooting everything I could handle, my socks, my underwear, laundry, it didn't matter. But she would hand me our favorite Stouffer's ham and cheese crepes and I'd shoot them into the basket. Bag of chips and I'd shoot it. So we always came home with crushed chips, bruised produce, but this was our best time. We would go up and down every aisle of the IGA, laughing, telling stories, talking about our day, and all the other crap could just melt away just for that moment. It's a precious memory that I have with my mom. Now, I'd, finally, I got that call towards the end of my senior year that I'd been waiting for since I was 12 years old. And I got a call from Jill Hutchison, who was the head coach of Illinois State University, Lady, Lady Redbird program. And she offered me a full-ride scholarship, and I happily accepted. <laughs> ISU would prove to be a perfect fit for me. I was once again in transition and struggling going from a smaller, well, a high school to a university where I could easily get lost. I was never a good student, and I was drinking more and more. But my love of the game of basketball and my commitment to my teams kept me going. So my freshman year, we did pretty well, and we ended up in the National Invitational Tournament in Texas, and we were playing Oklahoma State University. Time's ticking down, and we are up by one point. My first postseason ever as a freshman. I got a lot of playing time. So I'm guarding the ball, and this girl is pretty far from the basket. And back then, there was no 30-second shot clock and no three-point line. And she, she was a good 30 feet from the basket. But I was determined she was not going to score on me. And so she went up for her last-second shot, and I went up to block her. Well, you can imagine what happened. I fouled her. Yeah. 30 feet from the basket. Pretty sure she wasn't going to make it, but I fouled her. <laughs> she went to the free throw line for two free throws, and she made them both. Uh -huh. We lost the game. And I was devastated. I was really disappointed, mostly not because we lost, but really because I disappointed my team. And I know my team had to be upset with me, but they showed me tremendous grace. As, if, as a freshman, they chalked it up to a freshman mistake. Hopefully, I would never make again. So fast forward to my senior, or sophomore year, and we are playing our rival Southern Illinois University at their place. Always a huge game. Six seconds left on the clock. We're down by one. We have the ball out of bounds under our own basket. The ball comes in to me. Something I had dreamt of years and years and years. And it played out exactly how I dreamt it. I received the ball, I turned and faced the basket, I went up, 
with a perfect arc and swish. We are now up by one point with four seconds to go. And let me tell you, four seconds in basketball can be a long time. But everybody's screaming and hollering and everybody on the team is hugging and our band is going crazy. And Marla, our center, runs up to me and grabs my hands, both of them, and says, no foul. <laughs> in fact, I'm pretty sure every single person said, no foul, because they remembered that freshman mistake. So Marla kept hold of my hand and we went down and we played out those last four seconds and we won the game. Now, Marla holding my hand would become a symbol of everything that basketball meant to me and everything that teams meant to me. Going towards the end of my junior year, we didn't do particularly great. We had an okay season, but no postseason. But my life was getting out of control. I was drinking almost every day, smoking pot almost every day. I wasn't going to any of my classes. My behavior was erratic. Nobody knew what to expect. And I got a call from my coach who said, we need to talk. Now, this wasn't our first talk over three years that I had been there. And I know this was the most difficult conversation that I would have. So I showed up to her office and she laid it out for me. She said, you have two choices. You can either stop drinking and go into treatment, or you will never play basketball here again, and you'll lose your scholarship. This is not how I saw my basketball career ending. I was 20 years old. I had one more year to play, and I loved my team, and I needed them more than anything. So basketball, and those women on my team and everybody who came before them won that day. And on April 28, 1986, at 9 a.m., it was a Monday, I entered inpatient treatment. It was, it was the best decision I ever made, but it was also the scariest and hardest thing that I've ever done. After 32 days, I was released with a new shot at life. I stayed sober that summer, and going into my senior year, I earned my way back into my classes. I earned my way back onto that team. And I earned the trust of my teammates, and they voted me as one of the captains. I graduated, and I finished my education, and I walked across that graduation stage, something that I, I always wanted, but I never knew was possible. And now I'm almost 34 years sober, and I am eternally grateful since I was 12 years old and introduced to the game of basketball and every person who had influenced my life up until that point. I am eternally grateful to all of those teammates who are my sisters and my teammates for life. And it's funny, I'll still go into an empty gym and I'll pick up a ball and I'll look around and I'll listen for the crowd and I'll remember that last second shot that I had at Southern Illinois University and the joy, the pure joy of being a part of something so much greater than myself. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. That was a great story. 
So tonight, I have the honor and privilege of introducing a couple of my personal heroes. And I say that in all sincerity. One of them is Kate Burke. So if you don't know who Kate Burke is, Kate Burke is one of our Spokane city councilors. Uh, and uh, she truly spends her time trying to make this a better place to live. So it is my privilege to introduce Kate, who's going to tell us how she wasn't born a city councilor. She had a path to travel to get here, so her path started with basketball. Thank you for having me. Uh, so he took my punchline, basketball, but I'll still, st I'll still tell the story. Um, when I was a little girl, all I ever wanted to be was a WNBA basketball player. Uh, yeah, I got, those, I got those laughs a lot when I was little. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, part of me was absolutely pissed off that um, women made less money than the men, but I still wanted to do it. And so I forged forward and um, started a career in basketball in kindergarten. And um, I had a very successful uh, family, uh, supportive family, taking me to all of the tournaments and the games and coming to every single um, sporting event I had. And I was so excited and um, feeling really energetic around it. And I was, I was ready to play and get involved. And, and so I uh, you know, played all the way up into high school. And when I was a, a sophomore, uh, the game before I was moving up to varsity, uh, I was playing really well. And I had a, a terrible injury. Uh, I tore all the ligaments in my ankle. And um, I don't know if you've ever torn all the ligaments in your ankle. Um, but there's not a lot you can do after that. And so a lot of sitting around. And so that's when I started to read. And I realized there was a little bit of a life outside of basketball. No offense. <laughs> um, and so I read and I started learning about food injustices and food security and where food comes from. And from there, uh, a life of food justice took me to a cooperative farm in Burlington, Vermont, and um, working at a, the number one greenest restaurant in America in Chicago. And then I inevitably made it back to Spokane and I took a job as an AmeriCorps VISTA. And I worked at Second Harvest, uh, trying to bring in fresh produce to the food banks. And um, my job was to work with local gardeners and farmers to encourage them to plant extra. And then I would bring uh, volunteers to glean the extra produce and donate it to food banks. Um, and there were 10 AmeriCorps VISTAs in Washington State doing this work. And um, I just remember one summer, we were um, harvesting at a farm kind of over in um, close to Cheney. And I don't know if you've ever harvested carrots, but um, probably one of the best smells you'll ever smell in your life. Um, as you pull the carrot out of the kind of damp earth, it's one of the most refreshing smells ever. And so I'm harvesting carrots and I'm thinking to myself, well, this program's only been around for a few years. And why has it only been around for a few years? It seems like, you know, we're really doing all this good work and feeding all these really great, you know, all these families. And, and so I, I asked the question, and it was actually a statewide law change. Um, there used to be a liability on the farmers. If they donated produce to the food banks, there was a liability on them, and so none of them were doing it. And uh, now that we changed that law, uh, we were feeding millions of families this fresh, organic, whole foods. And um, I was just like, policy. And so... <laughs> 
So I started, you know, calling politicians, getting involved, working on campaigns, um, ended up working in Olympia for a state senator for four years. And um, after that, I decided I was ready to run for office. And I took it, I ran, I ran for city council, and I won. Thank you. <laughs> and I thought that this was the time where... Um, I was going to make the change, and so I started writing policies, and they got deferred. So I started writing some other policies, and they got deferred. Wrote a few more policies, got deferred, and I thought, oh crap, have I wasted this time and energy, you know, similar to my family investing in me to, this, to sports, have I wasted the time and energy of my community running for office and getting here and, and getting to this place and just feeling this kind of emptiness again, like I felt when I couldn't play basketball anymore? And um, that sat with me for a while. And um, a few months after that, I, I started receiving phone calls and emails. And there was a, a, a apartment complex in my district, the Vintage Apartments. It was a senior housing facility. And they had received a rent increase in the early part of the year, and they were receiving another rent increase. And um, they were very vulnerable and fearful. And um, so they called my office, and they said, what can you do? And I said, well, I can't write policy. Um, so uh, what else can I do? And so they encouraged me to meet with them. And, um, during that time, I thought, well, what else can I do for you? Um, you know what works sometimes is I write a press release and the news covers it. Maybe I could write a press release for you. And they said, okay, do it. Do whatever you do, we just need to get the word out about this. This is horrible. This is an injustice. And we're, we're struggling as you know, seniors. And so I wrote a press release and um, decided to have a meeting. And so I gathered all of the seniors in uh, a room similar to this size. And um, they all came down, and the news was there, and they recorded it. And they asked all of these uh, seniors about their story and what they were going through. And there was tears, and there was fear, and there was um, just all of these um, horrible experiences that these people were going through. And as the news left, um, I sat with these seniors, and um, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, was, I was feeling a little um, that kind of pit in my stomach again of, oh, I wish I could do more, I wish I could do more. And, and they, they were sitting there and they said, you know what you could do, Kate? You could write a letter to our landlords. You know, they're in California and you could write a letter to them. And so we sat down and we all got together and we started writing a letter, we drafted it out, we put in some emotional um, aspects to what was going on and we all sat down and wrote it and um, they decided they were gonna write one as well and so we packaged them all up together and signed it and sent it off. I was like, I did all I could. And I walked away and I you know, just wish I could have helped them more. And a few weeks later, I received a phone call and it was the property manager calling from California. Um, and he said, we received your letter in the mail and uh, I wanted to let you know we're sending the rent increases. Thank you. And I realized at that moment that um, I was able to use my platform and my position to work with the people. And they were the ones that came to me and encouraged me to do this. And so I still get that, that sadness and that sickness and that, that pit in my stomach, probably more often than not, about being in the wrong place on city council. But 
I know deep down that I don't necessarily have to pass every single policy to make everybody's lives better because the, the power is in the people and that's what I hold. Thank you. Thank you, Kate, that was awesome. Our next and final storyteller before the break is Tyler Hobbs. Tyler Hobbs is an educator and fundraiser who is taught in Los Angeles and Gonzaga Prep. Go Zags. Do you say that first, Gonzaga Prep? Do you say Go Zags? Or are they too young? Is that later? Huh? Oh, okay, my, sorry. I retract that. Uh, He's currently working on the Gonzaga University philanthropy team. He's passionate about building relationships, advancing educational access, LB, LGBTQ plus rights, and every Julia Roberts movie ever made. <laughs> Tonight in his story titled Keychain, he's gonna take us on a pilgrimage, on his pilgrimage uh, that ended someplace he didn't really know to expect. I remember my parents' dining room table had so much crap on it. Uh, more stuff than I thought could ever possibly fit in the pack that I'd have to carry on my back. T-shirts, um, like two pairs of shorts, one pair of pants, my boots, sandals, um, like a first aid kit, obviously a tent and a sleeping bag, um, not nearly enough underwear for 30 days, and um, a little pouch on this table of all this stuff. Uh, there's this little pouch on the table. And in this pouch was uh, a crystal that a friend had given to me that was supposed to keep me safe. And, uh, you know, keep, keep me safe. And uh, some photos, some photos of my family on little Polaroid pictures. And then uh, a little keychain. A little metal keychain, and on one side of the keychain were some numbers, and on the other side, some letters. And I remember thinking about that keychain and thinking, like, why, why am I packing this? Like, why am I bringing this with me? And before I could spend too much time with that, I kind of dismissed the thought, and I put it back into the little pouch. And I hooked the little pouch to the front of my pack that I would carry with me. So I left the next day from Seattle, and I flew first to Paris, and then to... Uh, Loyola, Spain, on the northwestern coast of Spain, and that's where I would begin my roughly 300-ish mile pilgrimage across northern Spain. Now, a lot of people do a really popular pilgrimage, which is called the Camino de Santiago, that has thousands of people doing this pilgrimage every year, and you really, you get to know people, and you're in community. Well, I didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> I thought I was doing a version of that, and then I got there and realized, like, oh, no, I'm doing this alone. Like, really alone. There was nobody for 30 days. And that was a little startling uh, and a little bit uncomfortable. And so I remember my first day of walking, and it was so beautiful. It was kind of like misty rain. And I'm walking on these, uh, like, cliff faces that are mossy, and water's, like, overflowing. And I thought, this is going to be, like, existential, like I am gonna like discover myself. And I finally got to the first little village of my trek and uh, my guidebook, which I'd come to find out would be an absolute waste of paper and time, 
um, had told me that there were like two hostels in this village. And I spent two hours, by this point it was pouring rain, I spent two hours trying to find them, I couldn't find anything. I finally, um, I was trying to live very simply, right, like $20 a day. And I finally found a hotel, I said, okay, I don't care, whatever. I went in, there was no one there, and I go into, I put my stuff in my room, and then I go down to the restaurant, and there is, there's no one in the restaurant. So this really sweet wait staff, they come out and they bring me food and wine, and I remember sitting there at this table feeling like so alone. Not lonely, I didn't feel lonely, but I just remember feeling like, oh my God. I don't have my phone, I don't have social media, I don't have Wi-Fi, there's no TV, there are no people here, there's nothing to read. I'm just sitting at a table by myself with a bunch of food and wine, and I didn't know what to do, and I hated it, it was awful. And so I eat like really fast, and I'm like, let's get this over with. So I, I go upstairs to my room, and I had like a, a journal that I had brought with me, and then I, I'm trying to think, like, how am I going to kill time for the next 30 days? So I open the journal, and I remember feeling so intimidated. It's completely blank. There's nothing on any of the paper. And I'm like, I, I don't journal. Like, what do people put in here? <laughs> I, like, I don't know what to write. And so then I just I close it up, and I put it away, and I, like, got ready for the next day. And so the next day, I literally climbed a mountain, none of which I did. I thought this was going to be like fields and prairies the whole way. And I climbed this mountain and I remember thinking like the whole time, like, I will die here for sure. And at one point, in like a really scary, legit situation, I, it was, I describe it as like trying to walk up a granite countertop and it had been raining and I slid, I like, I fell and I slipped down this rock and I cut my leg open and I, I slid like 10 or 15 feet. And I remember like feeling really authentic like fear. I was, I was scared I, and I'm alone in a foreign country where, by the way, they speak Basque, not Spanish there. And so I, I spoke nowhere near any of the words I, and I was completely by myself on this mountaintop and if you'd ask me what mountain, I'd say, I have no idea. So I, I had fallen, I was scared, and so I finally got to the top, and it was so beautiful. There were wild horses, which was so cool. And I, that night, when I got to my place, I thought, okay, I know exactly what I'm writing in that first page of the journal. And on the very top, I just write, if I die here. <laughs> and I write all the names of the people that I love. And so I write these really short little notes, right? Like, Mom, Dad, Ashley, Lauren, like my closest friends, these people that are nearest to me. And then I remember on the very bottom of the page, there was one name that I really wanted to write. And I remember like just time stopped for a second. And I kept thinking like, no, don't write that name. But I wanted to. And I kept looking to the top like, if I die here. And I don't write that name. You are over that. That is over. Don't write that name. If I die here. The next few days were a series of absolute disasters. <laughs> I uh, twisted my ankle in the mud. I was literally electrocuted on like a cattle fence. <laughs> that was awful. Um, 
I got to this hostel, and there were like no beds, and I, I finally got a bed in this kind of empty attic, and I was so tired, I kicked my shoes off, and I threw all my stuff on the bed, and I unzipped my pack, and I threw my sleeping bag down, and then I realized not so long after that there were bed bugs all over the bed. And I had a complete conniption fit. I lost my mind. It was, the, it was top five worst days of my whole life. And the next day, I left this terrible town, and there were two routes that you could take to get to the next village. And un unintentionally, I went one route, and I missed my like exit, and I walked back to the bed bug town, like an extra 12 miles. And it was too late for me to do anything. So that night, I slept in my tent, and I had half of my stuff outside the tent. And inside the tent with me was like a few things that I thought were the least likely to be crawling. And one of those little things that I had inside it with me was the little pouch from the beginning. And I opened the pouch, and I'm just thinking, like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Like, I've seen the movie The Way, and this is, like, not that. And... <laughs> I was just so, I was, and so I'm looking through these in the pouch. I open it up, and there are the pictures of my family, and I'm thinking, like, ugh, like, what I'd give to be with them, like, anywhere but here. And I take that crystal out, and I think, well, this is bullshit. I've nearly died. <laughs> and, and then I get to that little, the keychain in there. And I think, like, for the first time, I just was in, like, an emotionally raw place that I hadn't been, and I just kind of like sit with that for minutes. And I look at the keychain, and on the one side are our initials. And on the other side are the coordinates of where we had met. And I just, I remember it like perfectly. I remember exactly how we met. I remember, I remember like the first, the moment I saw him sitting there. And then he came in, and I remember he was wearing his dark jeans with those super cute brown boots and that watch that he would never really wear and this like light green collared shirt that would brought out his eyes, but I couldn't see his eyes because I couldn't look at him because he's like, and I remember I just felt like all the feelings. And then he spoke, and I almost fell out of my chair. And I remember, like, retrospect, looking back, thinking, like, you were so nervous, too. You knew it, too. And I remember that perfectly. I remember thinking that I would propose at that spot. That's where I would ask this person to spend the rest of his life with me. I remember that. I hated, I hated that I remembered that. I hated that I remembered that when I was halfway around the freaking world and that he was ruining this amazing trip for me. <laughs> and I couldn't stop thinking about it. The next day, I got to this city uh, called LaGuardia, and it had been a series of just shit days, and I was so tired. And so, and keep in mind, I was, I was committed to living simply. And LaGuardia is wine country. It's so beautiful. And on the top of this hill, there is this giant castle. And so I, I kept that, my simplicity in mind, and I went to the castle, and I said, I need a suite, and I need a king-size bed, a king-size canopy bed, and I want a giant tub, and I swear the tub was the size of this whole room. And I was, I was there, for, I mean, I think I was in that tub with a bottle of wine for like three and a half hours. And it was the best. 
It was so great. And I thought, like, one day, tomorrow, I'm back to normal. And then I was like, well, one more day. And then one more day. So I was there for three days, and it was the, they were the greatest three days. And I drank all this wine, and I met these lovely people, and, and I had all this time to sort of, like, unwind and, and like, physically heal and emotionally. And I, and I wrote a lot. And I looked to that journal, and I remember thinking, like, why am I here? And they ask you that question like at the very beginning of the pilgrimage, like, why are you doing this? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I just want to find myself and stuff. And then <laughs> I remember looking through that journal and thinking like, ugh, like, this is why I'm here. Like, his name is on every page. Like, this is why I'm here. Which is just like not the sexy thing I wanted, but that's what it was. And so I came to that realization in LaGuardia. Now, this pilgrimage that I was doing is called the Camino de Ignaciana, which is the way of St. Ignatius. And Ignatius lived in Loyola, and he was a soldier, and uh, he gave up that life, and he traveled across northern Spain. And my understanding is that at the River Cardinaire, which is almost to Barcelona, it's at the very end, he kind of like surrendered that past life there, right, at the river. And kind of gave up his armor and his sword and whatever soldiers have, and like... <laughs> And that's where his life kind of officially took that turn. And so I remember thinking there, like, that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit with this. I'm going to try to, like, move past this. And when I get to that river, I'm going to leave it behind. The next, like, 27 days, I went through a lot. I mean, I, t I, looked, I thought about other stuff, like jobs and things like that. But I thought about him a lot. And I wrote a lot of letters, letters I would never send. But I wrote a lot of letters. And some of them were letters like, I am, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know that I made a lot of promises that I did not keep, that I thought I could keep. And I'm sorry. And I'm also really mad because I've carried like the whole weight of this failed relationship on my shoulders. And like you did your share of shit too. And I'm also mad that like you have completely ruined this trip. I'm mad that like you weren't there to pull me out of the mud. I'm mad that you weren't there to make me feel safe on the mountain. I am mad that you weren't there to deal with the bed bugs. I'm mad that you weren't there to laugh at me when I got electrocuted. Like you should have been here, but you are not here and I'm angry about that. And I thought I was doing the right thing because I wanted you to be happy and you weren't happy and I wasn't happy. And you know what, now you seem, now you seem really happy. And so maybe I got what I wanted. So I finally got to the River Cardinaire, and I took um, that little keychain, and I wrapped it in a little piece of paper. And the River Cardinaire, maybe like in Ignatius' day was like beautiful, but it was super gross. Um, <laughs> and so I didn't throw the keychain into the water like I had imagined, because it was like nasty. And so I tucked it into like a wooden plank in the bridge. And I'd wrapped it in this little piece of paper and I tucked it away. And I kind of sat there for a minute like, okay. Kind of had my moment. And then I left. And then I went and met my friend in Barcelona. We had the time of our lives. And then I went to Rome and London. And then eventually I'm back on the plane and I'm flying back to Seattle. And I'm kind of like recapping the whole trip. And I reach into my bag and I pull up my journal. And I'm looking through all the stuff. And then I flip back to that first page of if I die here and everyone's name. 
And then at the very bottom of the page, there is a piece of paper, like the bottom of the page had been torn out. And then I reach into the bag, and I pull out the little pouch, and there's the crystal. And I was still alive, so like maybe there's something to that crystal. <laughs> and I look through the pictures, and then in the pouch, I reach in, and I grab a little something wrapped in paper, because I couldn't leave the keychain. I think I had left it there for like 20 minutes <laughs> before I walked back, and I had to get it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave it. I couldn't leave it behind. So I unfold the piece of paper, and I hold the keychain there in my hand, and kind of sit with that for a minute. And on the piece of paper, it just said his name and thank you. And then I kind of realized, like, literally the last day as I'm flying back, like, okay, like, so that's why you did it, I guess. And I really probably could have figured that out when I wrote that down. But I am sitting there in that moment thinking, like, it wasn't really to feel happy or sad because I don't feel either of those things. It was just about feeling grateful. And that's how I felt at the end of that trip, just grateful. Thank you. Well, that was a great story. Thank you. Joshua Porter is an international educational professional and philanthrope, active in Eastern Washington refugee, immigrant, and asylee communities. He curates discussion and opportunities for solutions with education, healthcare, and our community. He's going to share with us another crazy adventure story that began and ended someplace uh, you'd never expect. Here we go. Josh, big hand. Uh, the only thing more boring than doing your taxes is filling out a survey about doing your taxes. <laughs> and there I was, filling out a survey about doing my taxes. I was 21 years old and I thought, maybe this is just part of the process. Most of the questions were innocuous. Do you like doing taxes? No. <laughs> Who does? But then it got a little strange. It was like, what kind of animal would you be? A little odd H&R block, but marsupial, moving on. And I realized I chose marsupial. That's just a type of animal. Pouches, right? I didn't even go kangaroo or, I just went, yeah, nature's fanny pack. Let's do this. And I think nothing of it after that. Um, but a few days go by and I get an email and they say, we want to do a Skype interview. I'm like, okay, is this how you don't get audited? So I'm like, yeah, sure, okay, whatever you say, tax man. Uh, and I do the interview, it's the same questions, and so I give the same answers. Um, and then I let it go, and a few more days pass, and they say, we want to fly, I get another email, and in that email it says, we want to fly you down to Hollywood, California, first class, five-star hotel, and we're going to pay you to be in a commercial. I'm like, great, it's winning a free trip to Hollywood. I've never been to Hollywood. Yes, I'm in 100%. So I'm excited, and I go and tell my mom, and she says, no. It's a scam. You're going to be sex trafficked. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. And you have to understand, my mom is a sweet, sweet lady. She just watched too much true crime. 
you know, Dateline? She thinks I'm going to get kidnapped at every corner? My brother and I had to hold hands crossing the street until we could vote. <laughs> but I eventually convinced her. I, you know, go online and show her it's a real thing. And uh, next thing I know, I'm flying to Hollywood. And I land, and there's a well-dressed man in a black suit. And he says, Mr. Porter, Mr. Porter, he's holding a sign with my name. I'm your driver. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm so excited. I have a driver. So we drive to the studio, and uh, we talk, chit-chat, and I find out he's uh, also the driver for David Schwimmer. You know, Ross from Friends? Like, I'm one of the friends. This is great. <laughs> so I get even more excited. And they take me to the studio, and uh, it's massive. There's these big lots and security and, um, I don't know, big buildings with Hollywood hobbits doing their Hollywood magic. And I get to the place, and I meet a bunch of people, and I'm sitting there kind of waiting for the next step. And I say to no one in particular, under my breath, oh, I should have grabbed my cough drops. I was kind of recovering from a cold. My voice felt all scratchy. And 30 seconds go by. And this kid pops in the door and is like, Josh, cough drops? You want cough drops? <laughs> He's holding a bag of halls. And I'm like, how deep does this Hollywood magic go? I wish I would have brought my chest full of treasures and gold and diamonds. Can I make that come through the door? And so the, the assistant director comes over and plops down this contract. And I don't read a page of it. It's thick. I just flip to where I signed my name. Because you know it's Hollywood. They have my best interest at heart, right? <laughs> Um, and then I'm taken off to wardrobe, and they want to fit me, and there's two well-dressed, elegant women who are either side of me, and I'm sitting in a makeup chair, and they're dusting me and looking at me and holding up jackets, and they decide what I'm wearing is perfect. It looks just curated enough to be ragged and unplanned. And one of them leans over and says, oh my god, I love your scarf. Who's it by? And that question throws me entirely. I'm like, by? It's by me. I'm wearing it. I bought it. Do you not know how to speak in Hollywood? What is this? And I realize, and I say, oh, you think this is designer? No, 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 no. I got this for $2 at a thrift store in Spokane. <laughs> and this is pre-Macklemore, so that is not the cool answer. And they're silent the rest of the time. And I'm silent because I don't know what to do. And I'm like, OK. And that awkward silent drags on. I go back, and um, the assistant director tells me, um, it's late in the day. We're not going to film tomorrow, so we're going to bring you back day after tomorrow at 6 a.m. call time. Just be here. Your driver will pick you up. You can just hang out at the hotel. You can go enjoy Hollywood. And I'm like, excellent. This is fantastic. And then he hands me an envelope, a manila envelope with a stack of cash in it. I'm like, is this how you pay actors? What is this? And he's like, it's your per diem. I say, but you told me this food truck over here, everything's free, right? And the hotel, they're going to feed me, and everything's free. So this is for food? And he just looks at me and he's like, yes, it's your per diem. Just go. Get out of here. Get out of my face. And I'm thinking, acting is easy. This is fantastic. This is what actors do. This is simple. He takes me back to my hotel, my driver. I have a driver now. And uh, it's lavish. I mean, it's marble. It's really, really nice. It's the nicest hotel I've ever been in. There's fountains and gilded framed art. And I go up to my room, and it's not a room. It's a suite. There's multiple rooms and a remote fireplace in California. <laughs> and I have a private hot tub on the roof, and I'm, it's just insane. And I'm like, I live here now. This is my home. This is my castle. I live in Hollywood. I'm an actor forever. But I sit down for five minutes, and I get bored. I'm like, I got to get out of here. 
Five stars can only entertain me for just as many minutes. I'm like, this is Hollywood. I'm going to go adventure. I walk down to Sunset Boulevard, and I go to this place called Kitchen 24, and I sit down, and this girl my age comes by and sits next to me and introduces herself. Hi, I'm Kiri. And I say, hi, I'm Joshua. And we trade conversation. And I give her this whole elaborate story of how I wound up here. And she's like, that is insane. I'm taking you out tonight, and we're going to celebrate. I'm like, OK, I'm a local now. This is all falling into place. This is how it happens, right? And we go out, and we tear up the town. I take my mob money, and I'm offering to buy everybody drinks, and it doesn't work. Kiri pays for the first round. Her friends offer to buy the next, and the next, and the next. And we're just all of a sudden all dancing, going club to club to club. And the whole night is free and fantastic. And I wake up, and I'm in my hotel room, and it's filled with smoke. And I can suddenly hear in my head all those safety warnings and videos my mom made me watch when I was a kid, like stop, drop, roll, how do I survive this? And my head is pounding from all the alcohol and dancing the night before. And then it slowly occurs to me that it's not on fire, it's not smoke, it's mist or steam. And the shower's running. And so I go explore, and I'm thinking, who's in the shower? No one. It's empty. And then I recall what happened the night before. I got home. I felt disgusting from dancing my face off, and I wanted to take a shower to rinse off. But then I got thirsty, and I went back to the bed, and I passed out in my clothes. <laughs> and the shower ran all night. The hot shower. I must have used 3,000 bathtubs of water, and California's on fire and in a drought. But that's OK, because I'm a celebrity, and I can do it now. <laughs> and so my head's pounding. Every step is another knife in my brain. and. Um, I'm like, I just need some air. I need to get some air and get some food. So I walk down to, back down to Sunset, and I, I see Kiri, and she's working again. Um, and she's like, you look like garbage. Because I did. And I can hear my mom's voice in the back of my head. Right? Just go home. Rest. You get a big day, 6 AM tomorrow. You got to be a big actor and deliver your lines. And then I hear a slightly louder voice that's like, no, adventure, this is Hollywood, go explore. And I do it all again. Flash to a few hours, and I'm at the Rainbow Bar, I'm partying, they give me a name, and I go to the Viper Room, and I'm, red ropes are pulled aside, and it was this incredible, amazing night. There's a hundred stories in that night alone. But I wake up again, and I'm in the same hotel room, and there's no smoke or anything, but the phone is ringing off the hook. It's my driver who's been in the lobby waiting for me for hours. I'm going to miss my call time. So we rush to the set. I'm late, and so other people are going first. And it drags on and on and on, and it's later in the day. And imagine the worst hangover you've ever had in your life. But you suddenly have to be on stage in a studio with 40 people hanging on your every word. And there's lights just blaring down on you. And you have to be excited about taxes. <laughs> and I don't have lines. These are just my authentic answers to stupid animal questions, right? But I'm so exhausted and hungover. And I just give them really lethargic yes, no responses. Do you like taxes? No. I'm trying not to throw up at the moment, OK? And the, the director, because they paid a lot of money and put me up in this hotel to get me here and deliver their commercial, is trying to eke out any usable response. And he says, what do you do in your free time? I don't know, I rock climb. 
He's like, that's great. His eyes light up. He's like, we're going to move the camera down to a really low angle. I want you to pretend like you just climbed to the top of a mountain, and I want you to raise your arms up and say, I'm on top of the world. That's how he does it. That's how he wants me to do it. And I tried. I honestly tried. I gave it my best effort. But instead of that, it came out a half-question defeat. I'm on top of the world. And he says, thank you, have a nice day, and I know what that means, so I walk off stage and I swear I heard someone say under their breath, we're not going to be able to use any of that. <laughs> and so I go back to Spokane, and there's no driver waiting for me at Spokane International. <laughs> I go back to my regular life, and time goes by, and then the commercials air, and they're great. They're black and white and slow motion, and people do make taxes seem engaging and entertaining. None of them are almost throwing up. And I realized in that moment, I traded something in Hollywood. I traded a good performance for that authentic experience, getting to live like a rock star. I had the full Hollywood arc, you know? All the way to failure. <laughs> and I get it, I get it. I get how Hollywood can sink its teeth in you. It felt really easy and it was fun. Red robes pulled aside, rock star treatment, fast friends, free everything. But I realize there's also something more important than all that. Reading your damn contract and residuals. I didn't get any of that. I texted my friend. He said he got paid every time the commercial aired. He said it was in the contract. So I didn't get my big Hollywood break or my payday. But I have the story. So. I'm on top of the world. <laughs> Next we have Brent Birch. So Brent, I've had, truly it's been an honor and privilege for me to work a little bit with Brent and getting to know him. Uh, Brent has, uh, done many things in his life, but recently has become a professional storyteller, uh, which he has found is his true calling. So we are going to have that for us tonight. Tonight he's going to tell us a story about, uh, well, it's hard to describe it succinctly, but let me just say that it's a story of wonder and healing and told by a true student of the art of storytelling. So welcome to the stage, Brent. Good evening. Well, my story tonight takes us back to my earliest memory of life, when I was two years old, and I was hooked by kind of a mystery that has followed me all the way through my life. You see, my father was unemployed when my mother carried me, swimming in her fear and anxiety and her joy. I mean, who wouldn't have a certain amount of joy with the likes of me doing the backstroke in her belly for nine months? And my father remained unemployed during the first two years of my life, at which time he was hired by a church some 250 miles away. Yes, I was a PK preacher's kid. 
And my first memory of life finds me standing on the transmission hump of our turquoise two-tone 1958 Chevrolet. We've just gone down a hill past the schoolhouse. We make a left turn at the bottom of the hill and the headlights sweep across a little white house with a porch all the way across the front and a couple of tall cottonwood trees in the front yard. And my mom says, this is the house we're going to live in. But we didn't stop there that night. The house wasn't ready. We went across town to another little white house that was along the railroad tracks where Katie and Joe lived. And we stayed with them for a few days. Well, my first memory of life ends with my sister and I getting a hot bath together. And then I got to sleep in an old steamer trunk, an old steamer trunk that was piled high with blankets. Now, my sister thought that she ought to get to sleep in the steamer trunk because, after all, she was the oldest. But, alas, she was too tall to fit in the steamer trunk, so I got to sleep in it. Now, Katie babysat my sister and I from time to time during those first few years that we lived in that town. And I don't remember this, but my mother tells me that when they came to pick us up, I would cry and run to Katie and cling to her for dear life. And she literally had to pry me out of Katie's arms. Now, there's some people in life that we feel a natural affinity with, we connect with them easily, and there's others that we don't feel that way about. There was physical abuse in the family that I grew up in, and so love that I experienced was mostly based on maintaining a certain level of behavior, that kind of thing. Now, it's surprising how much I don't know about Katie and Joe. I remember that Katie gave my sister and I our first pet, a tabby cat with white paws named Pickles. And I remember that they rode around in an old late 40s black Chevrolet coupe that was always shined to, to a mirror finish. Now, Katie's first husband had died in World War II, and Joe was a locomotive engineer. Katie was a prolific gardener, and her garden was right out next to the railroad tracks. And the story is that for weeks and months, the train would go by, and Katie would wave at Joe, and Joe would wave at Katie. And one day, the train came to a halt, and Joe climbed out of the locomotive and came over and said, Hi, my name's Joe, and I wanted to meet you. And from there, one thing led to another. Now, Joe had tuberculosis, which meant as children, we were not allowed to be in the same room with him. And it also meant I couldn't sit by Katie and Joe in church. But I do remember Joe had, had kind of a scratchy voice, and I remember hearing him tell jokes from the next room. Katie seemed to dress differently than other women in our church, and she often wore wild hats, and I thought they were pretty cool. 
I remember Katie had a certain candy dish on top of the refrigerator that was always overflowing with maple nut goodies. And maple nut goodies were your basic gob of nougat rolled in peanuts covered with a hard candy shell maple flavored. Actually, it was probably authentic maple syrup. So it was kind of like two candies in one. But the thing I remember the most about Katie was how it felt to be in her presence. When I was with Katie, I felt safe and I felt accepted. Well, when I was eight years old, we moved away from that town. And by the time I was 17, where our story takes us next, I had myself pretty well tied up in knots. And I'd crammed my soul into a box the size of a, a Band-Aid box. Well, one of my friends worked out at the, at the convalescent center in town to earn money for college. And back in those days, a summer's wages actually could make a dent in college tuition. Well, one day, Sarah comes up to me in homeroom and says, you'll never guess who moved in over the weekend. Asked me if I knew you and got all excited when I said yes. And said, oh, will you tell him I would love to see him? I had no idea. Katie Young. Well, my jaw must have dropped all the way back to 1960 because I hadn't thought of Katie in an awful long time. But I knew in that second that I must see Katie. And that Sunday afternoon when I stepped back into that now unfamiliar feeling of love and acceptance, something touched me deep inside. Now, Katie was sitting up in bed with, the back, with the, the back of the bed up. And she said, oh, come over here. I am so glad you came to see me. Come and sit beside me. And she slid over in the bed. And I hopped into bed with Katie. It was like time stood still and we were ageless. It was like we could have been siblings or we could have been best friends. We swam in and out of each other all afternoon. I couldn't tell you what we talked about, but we were together. And after we said our goodbyes and I went down to my car, I sat in the car and I felt a rumble all the way back from 1960 and a sob came up and I cried for the first time in many years. And as I sat there crying, I was thinking to myself, What's the matter with me anyway? Why am I crying? There's no reason to be crying. Yeah. Well, there's no law that says every parent and every child will be best friends. And I definitely had a connection with Katie that I did not have with my mother. And
how does a child deal with a relationship that by the stars is water and oil? How does a child survive? We need our parents to survive. And we do whatever is necessary to survive, don't we? And if we're lucky, when we get older, maybe we can separate out the person we had to be to survive from the person that we came into this world to be. Well, mystery unsolved, yeah. What was Katie's connection to me? I've often wondered myself. Was she, was she a guardian angel sent to give me a, a good shot in the arm? Had we been through some tragedy together in another life? Had we been partners, lovers? Were we soul mates? Well, in the course of my life, I've gone from, hey, with all due respect, have you no sense of timing? To, at the end of the day, just being so grateful that I was hooked by a seed of unconditional love that has followed me all the way through my life and influences the man I am today. Katie, thank you. Thank you, Brent. Uh, it was a very powerful story. So for our last storyteller, uh, again, I am going to have the privilege of introducing truly uh, one of my personal heroes. If you don't know who Mandy Manning is, I encourage you to Google her. So Mandy, uh, amongst other things, is uh, a teacher. She uh, teaches English to newly arrived refugees and immigrant students in the Newcomer Center at the Joel E. Ferris High School. In recognition of the great work that Mandy has done, she was awarded Teacher of the Year in 2018. So uh, I, I decided I'm not gonna make this political tonight, but seriously, Google Mandy Manning. She is a, a local hero. And she's gonna tell us a story tonight about something most of us can relate to, probably my, my dad who still uses a flip phone, but everyone, probably the rest of us, can relate to this particular hook. Mandy Manning. Hi, everybody. Uh, those were some great stories, oh my gosh. I think Katie probably should have been a teacher, just saying. Um, so I, I've never really thought of myself as having an addictive personality. 
I have uh, been touched by addiction, often close to home, but it's been the stereotypical type of, of, of addiction, uh, drugs, alcohol. But you never know your poison. That one thing that slowly takes over your life and becomes something that you occasionally engage in to something that you can't even get through the day without doing. And it turned out for me, that thing came with vibrant, beautiful colors and a seductive voice. So I'm a teacher, and my first year teaching was also the first year that I had a cell phone. Yes, I'm that old. Um, and back then, cell phones weren't really that cool. You could call with them, and you could text, but it was super cumbersome to text because you had to hit the number so many times to get to the letter that you wanted. So it was much easier just to call, and most people still had house phones. But in the 21 years since I became a teacher, phones have changed a lot. Now, I'm old enough to remember those big blocks that the wealthy families had in their cars, that when you held it up, it looked like you were holding a brick. But now we have these amazing, like, handheld computers that we just keep in our pockets. And as a teacher, I can tell you, Cell phones are pretty much a nightmare. All of the kids have them. And I mean all of the kids. I teach brand new immigrant and refugee kids to our nation, and they all have phones too. And kids are hilarious with their phones. They have them, and they're using them, and they try to sneak them during class, and they just think it's totally normal to look at your crotch the entire time. <laughs> So it can be very difficult to navigate in a room full of 24 kids. And for the longest time, I really had a hard time understanding this, this, this need to constantly check in, the way that they played games all the time, even if there was just a moment of free time in between classes, the way that they're constantly taking selfies and now videos. I uh, didn't have a phone until I was nearly 25. And I also was late to social media. And for the most part, I just used my phone to text and to call. I never played games at all. Um, so it was really hard for me to understand, and I would get very frustrated with my students. That is until Candy Crush <laughs> and the beautiful columns of falling candies came into my life. It started innocently enough. My husband, he's sitting right here, he uh, loves to play games on his phone before he goes to bed. It relaxes him. And I used to make so much fun of him. Um, but one day, and, and he'll tell me that it's me that introduced him to the game, but I'm almost positive that he was playing a game one night and an ad came up for this mesmerizing game that had these gorgeous sounds, and these beautiful colors, and this voice that said, tasty, ooh, candy. And immediately, I went to the app store and downloaded it. And I started to play, and then I became a pusher. 
and I made my husband download it too. And that was our game of choice before we went to sleep at night. And so in those early days, it was pretty easy to, you know, just become an occasional user. Because um, you had to wait 24 hours if you used up all of your lives in order to play again. Um, unless you wanted to pay for lives, and I was not willing at that point <laughs> to pay for, for lives on a phone game. Plus, the levels, while easy at first, increasingly grew more difficult until it was taking me like three days to pass a level. It was so frustrating. And so one day, I turned to my husband and I was like, if I do not pass this level this time, I am deleting this game. And I didn't pass and I deleted it. So see, no problem, I wasn't hooked. And actually, I stayed away from it for years literally years. Um, and then my job changed and I started to have to travel a lot. I was traveling all over the United States and the globe and I was experiencing new places and I was meeting new people and it was all so exciting until it wasn't. And then I started to have to travel to two or three cities in a week and I was spending more time in an airport exploring the terminal than I was the city that was surrounding us. I was already into social media, so I liked to go to Twitter and Facebook, but only so much because the world is awful. So it would make me angry. And then I would read articles, but you can only read so many articles on that tiny screen before your eyes start to cross. And I, so I was very bored and I needed a distraction. And so one day I was on the plane and I looked over, and this woman was playing a game on her phone. And I looked at it, and I went, there were those candies. And they were falling, and they were just begging to be matched. And I should have noted in that moment when I saw Candy Crush, I should have noted that my, my breathing was increasing, and my eyes were wide, and my hands were all jittery but then I noticed they had a new kind of candy. And when you matched it, it turned other candies the same color. And then I heard that voice. Delicious. Ooh, yummy. And there it was again. I immediately went to the app store and I downloaded it. I had a six hour flight in front of me and of course I needed something to distract me. What harm could it do? Well this time it was a little bit different. You did not have to wait 24 hours for new lives. As a matter of fact, it just kept giving me free plays. I could play for hours and never die and the levels were easier. So I could play and pass and get three stars every single time. And here, yes. Ooh. And then I started to miss deadlines. And not even a movie could keep me 
keep my focus. I would have to pause in the middle of the movie and play one level, just one level. And then it started to infiltrate, fa infiltrate family time. We started not eating together as much and I found myself hiding in my office because I just had to play. But I didn't see this as a problem. Not even when my husband was like, get off your phone. I was like, because he still played games. Sure, he didn't play Candy Crush, but he played Where's My Water. <laughs> What's the difference? It's a distraction. But then the dreams started. I didn't even have to close my eyes and I would see columns of candies falling and popping and streamers. And you'd think that would be enough, but it wasn't. Then one day I was driving and I was approaching an intersection and the traffic light turned into candies. And I swerved a little and I thought, holy Jesus, I'm going to kill us all. And so I decided, okay, maybe it's time. I need to delete the game. But it was so hard. It was so hard and it took me forever and I kept telling myself just one more level. Just one more, okay, after this, I'll play one more level and then I'm done. And it wasn't until my son, my littlest, came to me and he was trying to tell me something and he was like, mom, 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 mom. And I realized I was on my phone and I wasn't paying attention to him. And so before I could even think about it, I just turned it off. I deleted the game before I could even think about it. And it seemed easy, but it was weeks where I would pick my phone up and I would go to the app and then I would realize it was gone. And I would feel it, that absence. So now, I take purposeful breaks from my phone. So we recently went on a family vacation. We went on a cruise and we chose not to get the data plan and we did not have Wi-Fi. And so the entire family, even my two phone-obsessed teenagers, turned their phones off and put them away, and it was heaven. But in the middle of our cruise, I was reminded of the hold these devices have over us. We had gone on a shore excursion to this beautiful beach in the Caribbean, and I wanted nothing more than jerk chicken. And so we found a little cafe, and we sat down to eat, the whole family, and there was a sign that said free Wi-Fi. And my middle son, he had brought his phone along to take pictures because that's, you know, our device does everything now. And he, and he was like, well, I just want to dash off of, I just want to text. I just want to text my girlfriend and tell her we're having such a great time and I miss her. Um, and so we were like, cool, do it. And that's when I noticed the change in him. He, his breathing became more increased and his pupils dilated. And every time the screen would start to go black, he would tap it, tap it, tap it, tap it. And it was really crappy Wi-Fi. So it was taking a really long time and he just couldn't wait, licking his lips, waiting for that fix, that connection. While in that moment, being completely unable to connect with the people right there in front of him his family. And I thought, 
that is me. That's my students. That's most of us. It's global. And as for me and my own addiction, it's very real. I own it. I try to put my phone away when, we're, when I'm with my family. I limit the time that I spend on any kind of entertaining app. I don't know if you've heard of TikTok, but open that app and before you know it, it's an hour later and you've watched a whole bunch of really ridiculous, stupid videos. But as far as Candy Crush, I avoid it at all costs. Even doing this was really hard for me. But sometimes when I'm sleeping, and I'm dreaming, I hear that voice. Ooh, tasty. Thanks. Well, sadly, that is all for tonight. Thank you all so much for coming. And remember, we've got another one of these coming up in April. Um, let's have a big round of applause for all our storytellers. Thank you all so much for coming, and we'll see you next time.